There is nothing extraordinary about crucifixion in the Roman Empire. When Pilate finally sends Jesus to be crucified, it's on a well-known and well-worn path. The religious leaders in Jerusalem know that the law of Moses declares the one who is crucified accursed. But if that's what it takes to be rid of Jesus, so be it. Both governor and high priest can walk away after the deed is done without further thought. At least they hope they can. Anyone who lives in Jerusalem or visits there in the Roman period is used to seeing crosses along the road, some bearing living men, some with dead men hanging from them, empty uprights, blood-stained, ready for the next round of executions. Around the time Jesus was born, 2,000 Judeans were crucified as punishment for a minor rebellion. And in the years 69 and 70, when the Romans finally lose patience and roll full force into Palestine, at Jerusalem alone, 500 men are crucified every day. No one knows for sure for how many days it goes on. Some guess 200. Do the math. There is nothing extraordinary about Jesus' crucifixion. There is that sign Pilate puts up over Jesus' head, perhaps mocking, perhaps Pilate's honest guess, but revealing more than Pilate can ever know. Crucifixion doesn't kill through pain or loss of blood. It kills by suffocation, and that can go on for days. So according to John chapter 19, when there's a need to rush things along, guards can break the legs of the crucified so they can't hold themselves up anymore to breathe. Jesus is already dead when the soldiers come along with their mallets, but they check anyway with a spear, John says, for good reason. Jesus' death on the cross is only extraordinary for that small group of people who wait there watching him die and then receive his body. But as far as they know, he's dead, and it's all over. New Testament scholar Bishop N.T. Wright says the extraordinary thing about Jesus' crucifixion is that within a few years, Jesus' disciples are talking and writing about the cruel common execution as an act of love, a victory. They believe Jesus is not defeated on the cross. It's the powers that dominate the world. They're done. As good as gone. The principalities have fallen. In John's Gospel, Jesus' last words on the cross are, it is finished, accomplished. His work is done, and done well. And remember John's description of Jesus in the upper room before he washes his disciples' feet. Jesus, having loved his disciples who are in the world, loved them to the end.
the end, telos, the same word Jesus speaks on the cross, till it's finished, till the work is done. And so it's not just about foot washing when John says Jesus loves his disciples to the end. It's John's summary of everything that happens Thursday night and Friday morning and Friday till sundown, and Jesus says it is finished. Six days of hard work done. Three years, according to John. God will rest in the tomb on the seventh day, But on the first day of the new week, then, Wright says, the revolution begins, the redemption and renewal of the whole world. The first Christians can see love at work on the cross. They can actually call the day of his death good because of what it makes possible. They really believe the old world dies with Jesus on the cross. And Easter Sunday is the first day of a new creation, and with God anything is now possible. Now for centuries, Western Christians have tied ourselves up in knots, trying to understand what Jesus' crucifixion means and what Jesus accomplished on the cross. In the West, We want to see results. What did he do that produced results on the cross? And there are at least three ways, three attempts to explain the significance of the cross in the New Testament. Fragments, hints, and experiments. But from the Middle Ages to our time, one of those possible truths has been the most common understanding and misunderstanding. It's also the most troublesome for so many of us. It's the reason many Christians stay away from church on Good Friday. For a lot of us, the idea of God requiring atonement for our sins by the blood sacrifice of his own son just doesn't connect with the God of love that we come to know through the life of Jesus. Now, we can't ignore the New Testament threads that lead to that conclusion. It's there. But N.T. Wright reminds us that if we take one part of the truth and insist it's the whole truth, it becomes untruth. And so much Christian teaching and preaching about the cross turns John 3.16 inside out as if it's God so hated the world he killed his only son. But we know it's God so loved the world that he gave his only son. We can't whittle the cross down to a personal possession like a piece of jewelry, an amulet. It's not I did wrong, God punished Jesus instead of me, so now I'm all right. Yes, we do experience forgiveness and understand it best as something personal, but we know, we know it's so much, so much more than me and Jesus got things all right, so me and Jesus got a good thing going. Our ancestors in faith never completely agree about the inner workings of Jesus' death, 
they have enough to do to keep up with the outer reality of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection and their impact on the world. And so they say, pointing back to the cross, this is how much God loves the world to accept death as the consequence of that conflict between that love and the enmity and violence of the world. To bring light to the world, Jesus enters our deepest darkness. Bishop Wright asks, how many Christians does it take to change a light bulb? It's okay to laugh on Good Friday. His answer, Jesus has already taken care of that. It's our job to go out into the world and make sure it's switched on. Now that's corny, but it's true. The cross still stands at the center of our faith and of the church. It's an ancient symbol of defeat, humiliation, death. Crucifixion, crucifixion goes down in history as one of the cruelest things human beings can do to one another. For us, the cross doesn't represent an ending. It reminds us of a beginning, the birth of a life to be lived for the sake of the world. Yes, the cross is a sign of violence and a call for us to stand against violence in all its forms, in homes and schools and churches and neighborhoods and all around the world. Yes, Jesus suffers on the cross and sets us loose in the world to respond to the suffering of others, to be brave enough to enter and share suffering, and to be strong enough to do whatever we can to end suffering that can be ended and to prevent suffering that can be avoided. Yes, Jesus dies on the cross and sets us loose in the world to comfort the dying, to ease their pain, to ensure no one dies alone, and to prevent death where it can and must be fought back. And yes, on the cross, Jesus defeats the forces, including the power of our own sin, that we so often still allow to have power over us and the world. Defeated, they can only go on if we let them, if we give up and give in. Jesus says, it is finished, accomplished. My work is done. Then he gives up his last breath. But he doesn't give up on us or the world. If we can't understand or ever grasp fully or agree on the inner workings and deep hidden meanings of the crucifixion, can we at least see it as a sign of love? No one has captured the wonder and the mystery and the paradox that is the cross better than Isaac Watts so long, long ago. See from his head, his hands, his feet, sorrow and love flow mingled down. Did e'er such love and sorrow meet, or thorns compose so rich a crown? Were the whole 
realm of nature, mine, it were an offering far too small. Love, so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. Amen.